0: Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. And I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, you can navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so you can help more people find the show. This week, I'm joined by Dylan Palman, an Acton Research Fellow and Executive Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, and Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate here at Acton. Today, we'll be discussing social media's influence on society, as detailed in a new essay from Jonathan Haidt at The Atlantic. But first, I'm going to go very online, uh, which is the characteristic of a lot of the reactions to... Elon Musk making an offer to buy Twitter now last week on this program Sam Gregg and I discussed the initial story it had not yet come out that this offer had been made but uh, last week when we had the conversation we knew that Elon Musk had purchased roughly uh, I think about 9% of Twitter at that moment in time. And he had become the largest single shareholder and he'd been offered a seat on the board and he had just last Monday morning rejected that offer to join the board. Not long after that, it became public knowledge that Elon Musk has made an offer to buy Twitter uh, for a total valuation of about forty three billion dollars at a share price. Of $54.20, that last three digits of the stock price valuation, not at all being a coincidence, uh, which I think is why, at least for some people, view what Musk is doing here as maybe just trolling. Uh, But nonetheless, he has filed to make an offer to purchase the entire company. For about $43 billion. The reactions to this, as you might imagine, were – what's the word I'm looking for? Unhinged. Uh, Let me give you just a sampling of, I think, some of the true incredible reactions to this. Uh, Max Boot, the Washington Post columnist. I am frightened by the impact on society and politics if Elon Musk acquires Twitter – he seems to believe that on social media anything goes. For democracy to survive, we need more content moderation, not less. Uh, Robert Reich uh, says, call me a radical lefty, but I don't want any oligarch to control the internet. Uh, I feel for him once he Googles the name yeah. Mark Zuckerberg. Got bad news for him. Uh, Anand Girardus, Elon Musk is why to abolish billionaires. Asking them to chip in their fair share isn't enough. Regulating them isn't enough. When people are allowed to acquire this much concentrated influence, they will inevitably manspread economic power into every other form of power. Uh, that is truly poetry. But I do think that the best two uh, of the unhinged reactions. Uh, first from David Rothkopf. We are the assets of Twitter. If we walk out the door the moment Elon Musk takes over, it is nothing. And I can tell you, I, for one, have no desire to participate in the social engineering experiment of that particular out-of-control megalomaniac. But to me, none of them will top Jeff Jarvis, who, who tweeted on April 14th, Today on Twitter feels like the last evening in a Berlin nightclub at the twilight of Weimar, Germany. and bienvenue, welcome. Yeah, so.
1: Uh, Thank you, Liza.
0: You are, uh, you are uh, Joel Gray, the, uh, the MC in the uh, movie version of Cabaret. Uh, yes. Uh, so the reactions are all unhinged. And the thing that I found fascinating about this, and we can get into the seriousness of what Elon Musk is doing and the actual meaning of what Elon Musk is doing. But what I was just struck by is all of these reactions, of course, are tweets from people with the pretty little blue check marks that come after their name. And it is a demonstration to me of how everybody, everybody making these kinds of comments takes Twitter far too seriously. They actually think that it is the real world. They think that it is reality. They think that – and I think this is true of people who are in favor of what Musk is doing as well because you get this very grandiose rhetoric about how Elon Musk is saving democracy, that it is uh, just – what he is doing is – The guarantor of free speech that it is going to be so incredibly important. And I want to put this in context Uh, for people who are saying things like, you know, I'm glad Elon Musk uh, has offered to buy Twitter. And I definitely think he's having a positive impact on the issue of censorship. But also it weirds me out to have something so fundamental dependent on the whims of billionaire on billionaire rock'em sock'em. Okay, something so fundamental. Twitter has 390 million global users. It has about 69 million users in the United States. 25% of those users produce 97% of all tweets that are sent. I think I've made this comment on this show before that I have yet to come across someone. The Venn diagram of people who loudly proclaim that Twitter or social media in general is the new public square and people who are just terminally online. It's not a circle, but it's very close to being a circle. So, Dan, what should we make of the serious side of what Elon Musk is doing here? And what should we make of the reaction to it? How important should this actually be?
1: So, you know... To your average citizen, probably not much. I mean, Elon Musk hasn't talked a lot, other than you know, being guided by sort of free speech principles as to what he will do. He has not put together you know any sort of new rules based framework that he hopes Twitter to run on, um, which it doesn't now. Now it's sort of a haphazard moderation there are some rules there is very unequal and arbitrary enforcement of those rules um, many of which favor favor the blue checks uh, those sort of credentialed folks um, who twitter recognizes now it's very interesting this negative reaction from the press because you know we had you know among those quoted was a Washington Post columnist. And the Washington Post sort of tagline is that democracy dies in darkness. And the Washington Post is owned by the second wealthiest man, Jeff Bezos, of Amazon. And there's no concern there. I mean, there, there was a little bit of concern when that happened, but that's largely evaporated. Um, Uh, The Salzburgers um, ownership of the New York Times, Carlos Slim, the wealthiest man in Mexico, bringing when the Times was very troubled, bringing a sizable investment to this um, is not there. You know, we had a whole film Citizen Kane (laughs) about, you know, the influence of wealth on the press. But I think Twitter what this reveals is how important Twitter is in the minds of many journalists in that it's more important than any of the publications they actually work for. And what is their bread and butter? And you see journalists talk about this. Uh, Megan McArdle had a great sort of tweet thread a while back on how Twitter sort of mail forms incentives for journalists – and that Twitter actually doesn't promote as much engagement with the news as one would think with how much time journalists spend on it. But it does help them cultivate a personal brand. And in an industry that's very much in flux in which people routinely you know, are fired, laid off, change jobs, they make these sort of lateral moves – Um, Twitter is very important. And if we look back on when that happened is it was in 2011 with the Arab Spring when basically people self-reporting in the Middle East scooped much of the actual press on activities that were happening on the ground. Media folks rightfully turn to it as a potential source of information when many governments in the Middle East were suppressing information, were in fact disconnecting their whole nations from the internet. In some cases, I believe Egypt did this among several others. So they see journalism as as really an extension of Twitter itself in a way that even publications, even you know the most prestigious, popular magazines, newspapers, they see Twitter as an extension of their profession at large in a way that they don't. And I find that really, really fascinating. The uh, Business Insider tweet
0: when Jeff Bezos acquired the Washington Post. This was in 2013. Billionaire Jeff Bezos Washington Post by marks a fascinating cultural transition in America. Uh, their tweet on Elon Musk proposing to buy Twitter, Elon Musk's attempt to buy Twitter represents a chilling new threat, billionaire trolls taking over social media. Uh, again, the I, I generally dislike this kind of stuff, this, this kind of truffle swines for hypocrisy routine that it, it, I think is – encouraged by twitter where people want to go back it was really as a journalistic technique not pioneered by but i really think solidified um by tim russert on meet the press who his uh what he would have people on would always go back and find you at one point said this now you're saying this what changed and to some extent there's there is a limited amount of value in that to having people ex- explain i've always said i've politicians anybody I've never had a problem with them changing their minds i want to know why you have to tell me why you can't suddenly go from being pro choice to pro life without giving me a reason why if you don't want me to think that it is just a cynical political ploy Um, i I think dan is right it's an extension of these people's uh profession but it's also become an extension of their identity and what elon musk is threatening to do here he is you know he's not threatening to acquire something that is so fundamental to the operation of democracy in this country he's not even just threatening to acquire a social media platform with millions of users he's threatening to acquire their private water cooler their public Break room where they all chat with each other. And again, go back to the point that I made about how 25 percent of people on there produce 97 percent of the tweets, again, with only 69 million Americans having an account. It is that elite, that blue checkmarked elite that is just this is an affront to them because this is someone who they don't view as being on their side, whose own politics, I think we should note, and philosophy are Interesting and weird and kind of libertarian-ish, techno-utopian, um, but he's just not one of them. And as a result, they are frightened that something that, if we're being honest, if they all just logged off forever, they and I think almost everyone would be better off for it. But maybe if, if that's the result of Elon Musk buying it, that all of these people log off Twitter forever— Uh, Maybe then it's a net benefit to society, but I don't think that that's going to happen, unfortunately.
1: There's also, just to bring this up very quickly, um, talking about Elon Musk as a troll, which he is on Twitter. The 4
0: the 420 in the price that he offered is clearly a, a troll on his part of some kind.
1: And sort of the masochistic relationship that many journalists have with Twitter is they are routinely pilloried, insulted, sometimes threatened, sometimes in serious ways demeaned by people on the internet who seek to get a rise out of them. Um, And you see this, there was recently an interview with uh, Taylor Lorenz, a uh, tech reporter formerly of the Washington Times, now with the Washington Post. The New York Times, now
0: of the Washington Post, yeah. Yeah.
1: Who um, broke down in tears talking about basically her social media interactions in this interview. So the notion that someone who is a sort of self-identified troll and might be, you know, uniquely terrifying to those who are sort of exposed to the worst of social media in many ways um, while also sort of strangely dependent and identified with it.
2: Yeah, so I I remember I joined Twitter for my job here at Acton. In fact, I think someone joined it for me and then told me the password, and then and then I had my own Twitter. Um, so I, I it wasn't something I was drawn to, uh, but that was probably back in 2012 or 2011, sometime around then. Um, and one of the things that other people have commented on, and that you know I certainly found really concerning, um, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but this will relate to our next topic, is just how many journalists there were on Twitter who were using it just like anyone else, right? They didn't cultivate a certain, like, public persona. Whereas I'm on Twitter, I'm thinking, well, when I tweet, it says Acton Institute in my my little bio, and I want to make sure that everything I say is of a certain level of, uh, you know, professional character and all of that. Journalists were just Openly tweeting about whatever was on their minds. And it really undermined the sense of, uh, you know, objectivity to their work. Um, I don't know that that's the only thing. I think there's a lot of factors, um, but you get that. So people seeing literally what is going through a journalist's mind at any time, including their very political opinions about current events, uh, which if they're not an opinion writer, is not very helpful to their job and to their brand. Um, and then you get, as as Dan mentioned, things like the Arab Spring and other sorts of, um, you know, breaking news, uh, which was getting to the public via Twitter and via other other means. Um, I mean, Facebook has like three billion users, so probably more there. But uh, but anyway, through Twitter, uh, getting there to the public before they could get there, and so in a sense, scooping uh, their ability. Um, I think you move down the line, you get uh, an entire presidency where I don't think there was a single day that went by from 2016 to 2021 of there being – without there being a headline of President Trump tweets, right? the man would just tweet, and it would be a headline in the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever. Um, so this is something that they have, for whatever reason, I think wrongly, um, just shaped their whole careers around. Um, I think that kind of the not not to put it um, coarsely, but the jokes on them that I don't I don't quite think that Twitter is their replacement. Um, maybe to some degree, yes, you know, self-reporting and, you know, posting stuff on social media. Uh, but when I look for breaking news, and I actually got this from Dan Huger sitting right here, uh, when there's a developing story. So, for example, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, to me, the most reliable place to go is Wikipedia, Uh, which I know might sound shocking to other people who grew up in the 90s. And we were all told, don't use Wikipedia, don't use Wikipedia, don't use Wikipedia for school and all that sort of thing. Um, But it's come to the point where Wikipedia is a source – where you have people from all around the world with very clear rules and guidelines, very strictly enforced, of what can be posted what cannot. Um, everything is sourced. Everything is, you know, and, and they go out of their way. So, like, if you go to, like, the, the Ukraine war, uh, you know, page or uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine page, they have the statistics from the Russians and the statistics from the the Ukrainians and the statistics from the U.S. and the statistics from NATO. And you get all of this this variety of sourcing um, in a genuinely objective way. It doesn't mean there's not problems with Wikipedia. And I think depending on the topic you get into, it becomes less reliable. But for breaking news, um, there are places out there that really, for me, have completely overtaken, you know, just opening up the newspaper or Googling it or whatever. And so with Elon Musk saying, hey, I want to buy this. You have this combination of people realizing, you know, for years now, decades now, papers have been closing, jobs have been lost. Um, I think of the the Ben Fold song, um, uh, Fred Jones. Uh, it's all about a newspaper man being laid off, and everybody forgot his name. He's been there so long, and you know, it's just this kind of sad day, and nobody even understands how sad it is. Well, this has been like the reality for a lot of these people, um, and and it's just yeah, another instance of them feeling like. You know, the old world is slipping away from them.
0: I want to come back to the point you were uh, just making there and and do that vis-a-vis uh, a, a steel manning of what Max Boot uh, tweeted. But first, um, the I, it is revealing of a certain – Breakdown or break up in the way that journalism has operated in this country for most of the 20th century. I think it is worth pointing out that uh, this objective model of journalism is a bit of an outlier in that if you go you know, particularly if you look at British newspapers – These newspapers, even in their news coverage, have a very partisan or ideological worldview. And if you want to get a balance of what is going on out there, you would read multiple newspapers. This is true at the time of the uh, American Revolution and just post the American Revolution. And this kind of Columbia Journalism School journalistic ethics evolution into this idea of objective journalism is a bit of an outlier. Um, But I think by and large – Until it really started to break down, uh, sometime in the late '90s into the early 2000s, served pretty well, but with notable problems. Right, you would have the way that Walter Cronkite would sign off the evening news is, and that's the way it is, which is this just epistemological statement about like this is the way the news is not. You know, it's not here is what was important that we decided in the newsroom today. Um, it is the way that it is. And I think that Concretean attitude got inculcated into so many people whose job was journalism. And uh, to your points earlier about the way that is very, you know, Yuval in kind of point that I beat like a dead horse on this podcast is – that people are treating the journalistic entities that they are a part of now as platforms on which they stand and perform, not as institutions that are supposed to serve a purpose. As Levin points out uh, in his book, you know, Brown university and the New York times are very different institutions. They are supposed to do very different things, but functionally now they operate for the same purpose, which is a platform on which people can stand and complain about oppression. Uh, So I think there is this breakdown crack up in journalism that has only been made worse by the ability to do for people who are journalists to do what Twitter does for everyone, which is allow whatever thought fragment enters your brain that can be condensed into 280 characters or less to be shot out to the entire world. Uh, Which is a reason why I joke every time we bring up Twitter on this program, uh, the best advice is always don't tweet. Uh, John Putthoritz from Commentary, I thought, explained this incredibly well. The upside of a very good tweet is that it might amuse, you know, a few people in your life or a few people you know online. Or in the extreme case, you get 10,000 retweets, right? The downside is you tweet something bad and it destroys your life and your career completely. Right. Um, it's not worth the trade-off. And in that sense, it would be good if people got off of it. But like I said, I wanted to come back to the steel manning of Max Boot's uh, tweet, which I'll remind you again. I am frightened by the impact of, on society and politics. If Elon Musk acquires Twitter, he seems to believe that on social media, anything goes. For democracy to survive, we need more content moderation, not less. I don't fully agree with the last sentence in there. Um, but there is a reality that We need some content moderation. There is a social media platform similar to Twitter that has no real content moderation to speak of. It is called Gab. It is virulently anti-Semitic if you go and you read the commentary there. The problem with the internet as anybody and all of us who uh, we're, were of the generation that grew up Before the internet was really a thing, we were kids when before the internet was really a thing and we came to adopt it later in life. So we both understand the world before and after. We've seen these evolutions from like web 1.0 to 2.0 to arguably what is now web 3.0. And Musk thinks about it in a very web 1.0 kind of way, which is this let people open up and say whatever they want. We saw what that evolved to. If you allow everything... It is going to end up being a place that is a repository of some of the worst, most awful and crude things that exist online. You're you're going to have that happen. So the problem I think Musk has, and again, we're kind of taking for granted in what I'm talking about here, that Musk acquires Twitter. He goes ahead and he does it. it, overcomes whatever financing and financial hurdles he would need to to get this deal done. They accept the offer. He's going to find himself in a position where they still have to engage in some kind of content moderation. Now, perhaps it is true that under Elon Musk's benevolent leadership at Twitter – They embrace something a little bit more like a a constitutional First Amendment philosophy on content moderation that as long as it is not truly incitement or anything criminal, that they're by and large going to let it go. But you know what? It's not going to be. It's not going to be what a lot of people seem to imply that they believe it to be, which is an anything goes forum. It's never going to be that because you know what the reality is? Nobody wants to be on those platforms. Which is why the content-moderated ones, even if they're poorly moderated, have more users and more cachet than Gab.
2: I will also say, as maybe a somewhat contrarian point, even if they did, so let's say they take off all of the restrictions, all of the moderation. They say, we're just going to be fair to everyone by doing nothing. Either you will have people leave, as as you imply, um, because people will prefer some level of moderation. Uh, but you also do have social dynamics of the people who are already there. A lot of the people who are already there are already bullying people. They're already canceling people. They're already uh, trolling people. are, You know, whatever. Um, you know, the these tiny sliver of people who make 95% of the tweets can band together for a cause. They do it all the time. Um, they can moderate, um, maybe not as effectively as getting someone kicked off or getting their tweet – Uh, blocked or something like that. Um, But I don't know that therefore now nothing will happen. So that would be my slight, uh, I mostly agree, but I I would be curious to see how with this current population at this platform, uh, if it's really as bad as people worry, given, I mean, given how bad it currently is, (laughs) right? The the implication is it's going to get worse. Um, I don't know that it's going to be that much worse
1: so what one of the interesting things as we're discussing this that i'm i'm reminded that um, if journalists see twitter as an extension of their profession and their identity they expect it to do what the news does and the news is in you know what we know as the modern news the sort of cronkite era news where we're winning the vietnam war until the news says we're not um is an ideological project. Walter Lippmann wrote a very famous book, Public Opinion, in which he talks about – and he's trying to come up with a solution to we're living in a more and more centralized world. This comes out in 1922. This is, you know, growth of government power, welfare states. We're just coming out of a world war. We're, you know, unknown at the time. Going to be coming into the second one. And he and he talks about how sort of the real environment is altogether too big, too complex, and too fleeting for direct acquiescence. And he talks about how people, you know, live in the same world, but think and feel in different ones. And he sees like this is a problem in terms of how do we how do we deal with that reality? in a mass democracy, in an increasingly democratic world, in an increasingly um, where, world in which government power is centralized and controlled. And one of the ways is to sort of figure out this standard public opinion and present that to people. And then that is the grounds in which democratic debate can happen, um, Twitter has broken that model in a lot of ways, but it is also, and one of the things that Elon Musk has been concerned about is it's also emulating that model in certain ways. You know, we have notifications on, you know, COVID misinformation. We have notifications on election fraud, these sorts of things. So there's, you know, there's always going to be moderation in terms of, you know, incitement to violence personal threats, obscenity, these sorts of things. But if Twitter is the future of news and if news is to continue, it has a larger set of ambitions than just being what we typically think of as the public square. And that's where I think a lot of the pushback is coming Elon Musk clearly sees this as a public square and he sees this as being compromised by sort of hard and soft censorship. Journalists see Twitter as a media outlet and as a media outlet, it has a duty to the public to facilitate the functioning of mass democracy. And I don't know if we can recreate what Walter Lippmann sort of, you know, successfully theorized and was implemented for much of the 20th century going into the 21st for good or for ill.
0: This is where I come back to my point about the the people who so loudly proclaim that Twitter is the new or social media is the new public square and treat Treat it as such when there are so few incredibly active users it is a very small public square for a very elite group of people but it is talked about usually from the political right in as if it is you know the true version of the public square for common everyday Americans and it is just not true. There are just not that many people who are, A, on it. In a country of 339 million people, again, 69 million people have an account, which is not to say that they are active users of this platform. Again, 97% of the tweets are produced by 25% of the users. And I bet if you got that down to the 99% of the tweets are produced by, you probably are getting it down to might even be single digits, in terms of percentage of users, um, it is a platform for people who are terminally online, and the people who make those kinds of proclamations that we need to think about social media companies as you public utilities, um, as if the service that they are providing is comparable. To The telephone, it'd be one thing if Twitter was the way that, you know, I communicated with my grandmother who lived in a completely different state. Um, It is not that Uh, there are those public carrier uh, public utility options that are still out there. There's still email. I mean, email, you would make a much better argument as a public utility then you can something like Twitter that is utilized only minimally. And I think this has just been a fascinating insight to me into the mentality of the people who are so deeply concerned about this on both sides of it, the people who are so frightened by this that they think that it is the end of democracy. And the only reason that I know that they haven't turned their concern level up to 11 is because the sign that they've done that is when they start referring to America as the republic. That's the sign that you know that they're really serious about what they're concerned about. And for people on the right who think that Elon Musk is some messiah figure who is going to you know, deliver salvation to the political right who are oppressed uh, by these content moderation tactics. And for some people, it is just simply a proxy for he's going to bring Donald Trump back on Twitter, which um, I think is probably going to happen anyway. Maybe now is a good time to transition to our se- second topic for today, which is this uh, very interesting essay in the Atlantic from uh, the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. Uh, other, of a couple of my. Favorite books from the last uh, uh, 10 years or so, The Righteous Mind and The Coddling of the American Mind, uh, the second of which he wrote along with uh, Greg Lukianoff from the organization Fire, Uh, both I highly recommend. The the title of this essay is Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. It is a long read. We will include it in the show notes, but there's a link where you can listen to the audio version of it. The audio version of it is 53 minutes and seven seconds. Um, So it is a bit of an undertaking, but it is very interesting and very thought-provoking, and there's a lot in there to grapple with about the impact, uh, particularly that social media has had on American society. And he begins it with this uh, question. What would it have been like to live in Babel in the days after its destruction and the what he draws out from that is it's people walking around delirious and confused not speaking the same language to each other and that he compares this to the problem that we have today in our communication that we have uh, these different groups of people who are talking uh, at best past each other that a lot of social problems that were seeded, I think, before social media have been exacerbated by social media. And as a result, we should start thinking about how we grapple with these problems while recognizing, as Height points out in here, it is probably going to get much worse before it gets better. If anybody else wants to expand on a summary of the topic of that or just dive right in, I will just throw it out there for you to do it right now.
1: I mean, height's sort of central... Thesis on okay, how do people come together? It is it is not through building giant towers and all speaking one language. Um, how people come together, according to Hyde in the in the article, is that you know he talks about how social scientists have identified at least three major forces that collectively b- bind together successful democracies: social capital, which is extensive, which he defines as extensive social networks with high levels of trust, strong institutions, and shared stories. And he talks about how social media has weakened all three. So that's sort of the central thesis of the, of the corrosive power of social media is that it undermines uh, social capital, that it undermines institutions, and that it undermines sort of shared narratives uh, for folks. Whether – how much that's true and the ways that that are true – I think I think our interesting our interesting I have interesting departures from height.
2: Yeah, so I think I think he makes a compelling case. I have some somewhat contrarian caveats that I would add as well. Um, but so the basic idea um, is is simply that you you now have these platforms, and especially with he talks about the invention of the retweet button, um, this ability to quickly share. Um, material um, and and for it to go viral um, in, you know, exactly what we think of that. And then the desire to go viral and how that affects the way in which people interact with one another. Um, I think, I mean, I, I think he's largely right uh, to, to at least a certain degree um, that this has really warped our interactions with each other and it's warped, um, our political interactions, in particular, and to the, the extent to which we politicize uh, any given topic, um, because everything can always be related to that nexus. And when you do so, it tends to make people more upset. And when they're more upset, they tend to retweet and comment and like and don't you know dislike and all these kinds of things. Um, so there, there are all sorts of incentives to human behavior that are built into the system. And a lot of them came about uh, somewhat spontaneously, somewhat um, in a, a very like business, consumer-serving mindset, right? The the idea of the retweet button was people were asking for this, and so they finally figured it out and they delivered it, and they said, "Here you go, everybody, retweet to your heart's content." Now you know we've and they and they had positive expectations for what this would mean, um, and it really didn't pan out that way, so. Uh, I don't know if you want me to get in my caveats, but
0: I can also pause there. I want you both to get your caveats and I want, Dan, you to get into your departures uh, from hype. But one of those pieces that, Dan, um, you said that stuck out to me uh, was this idea of shared stories um, that I think is – it's interesting to me on a couple of levels. Arguments that I have had with um, uh, particularly libertarian friends of mine who had, if not contempt, just a a general dislike for the American uh, civic religion. Um, I I thought it was interesting that one of the people who I would have characterized as uh, being most hostile to that idea uh, acknowledged to me a few years ago that um, it turns out that the American civic religion was probably preferable. Uh, To a whole lot of the things that it got replaced with Um, an American civic religion, for better or worse, is a shared story. It is a shared idea of ourself. It's the story we tell ourselves about ourselves and about who we are as a country and a culture. One of these uh, one of the ways, too, that I think we can drive home this idea that uh, we're losing shared stories is not as much in social media to me as it sticks out in pop culture and entertainment, that we have this golden age of television, we were told, right? We we live in this time where the kind of things that we could talk about with each other at the actual or proverbial water cooler is better than it has ever been in terms of the quality of what is being produced. However, 105.9 million people watched the final episode of MASH. The program of the last 15 years that was probably, I think, the most watched and celebrated of television programs that was out there, I think it's arguably Game of Thrones. The final episode of Game of Thrones drew 19.3 million people. Uh, Sonny Bunch had a really great essay on this a while back about how uh, there's this kind of weird paradox that we have. Uh, entertainment has never been more interesting and more creative. And you have to go into these smaller and smaller monocultures in order to have conversations about it. Because even just amongst your group of friends, you may be selling them that we sh- you should watch this program, you should watch that program. But there's just so much out there and there are so many options, which on one hand is beautiful, but it robs us of this ability to talk about the same things And the pro- proliferation of information, of entertainment, of microcultures on the internet and on social media makes it so that we all have our own pointed interests, and we can find those interests. But it also makes it difficult to talk about those things to people who aren't those specific groups of people online. So that's just one of the things that stuck out to me about the shared stories part of
2: it. So that, that dovetails really well with one of my caveats. Um, and and point taken. I I don't disagree, um, but hype uh, mostly talks about Facebook and Twitter, um, and I think his diagnosis is mostly right there. Although he talks about you know in the old days of MySpace, people were just sharing family photos and they were talking about the new music that sort of thing. My joke about um,
0: MySpace was always, "You and everybody with an earshot are absolutely going to love the first ten seconds of this song."
2: Yeah, sure, um, but. In my experience, Facebook now is a lot different than Facebook just five years ago. Five years ago, there was long political rants among, you know, my Facebook friends. Now, maybe I've you know, muted enough of them or unfriended them or maybe they've unfriended me or whatever. But now it's 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 like MySpace. It's like we're sharing pictures of our kids and our families. We're saying, hey, look at this song uh, or hey, look at this event coming. It's it's a fairly positive place in my experience. Maybe that's not everyone else's experience. Feel free to, to tweet at me about how wrong I am. Um, but the other thing is that social media is just broader than these platforms. So uh, one of them, which uh, deservedly gets a bad rap often, uh, but... For that, people miss the positive side is something like Reddit. Um, so, if you go to, uh, and this is something Dan has pointed out to me, if you go to the Taco Bell Reddit, it is one of the most positive places on the internet with people just saying, Oh, I had such a bad day, but then I did this 11 o'clock Taco Bell run, and now I just feel so much better about the world, guys. And everybody's like, Me too, you know, like, and it's just this like crazy, non politicized, uber positive, just people loving Taco Bell and telling each other their stories about how great it is. Um, It's this hyper-focused sort of thing. It's not, you know, this general national conversation, but there are positive social places on the internet
0: still, um, if you know where to find them. I've far be it for me to suggest that uh, we would not be all united by the love of the naked chicken chalupa.
1: (laughs) So the the shared stories is you know, there's good and there's bad to that. There are there are shared stories, you know, when we were talking about gab. There is a shared tragic story embodied in the protocols of the elders of Zion about how, you know, the Jews control the banks and the institutions and the government. And those are not, and the internet
0: modification of that is that uh, beyond all those things, they also now control the weather and the space laser.
1: Yeah. So, like, like the idea that shared stories are unequivocally good is is bad. But not only that, but stories tend to simplify things, and they tend to simplify things in ways that you know we need them to be simplified. Um, you know, stories can inspire us. They can uh, motivate us. They can ground us. But they can also cause us to overlook things that don't fit. Um, and so, you know, while I think, you know, you know, a sort of, and what Height's talking about here is a national story. He's not talking about the story I got on Easter Sunday. He's not talking about um, you know, the story of the Huger family coming from Dusseldorf to Holt. although the, or maybe the degree to which he's talking about that is the degree to which that's just one instance of an American story, which sort of obscures the distinctives of the Huger story, although it imbu- imbues it with some sort of more meaning. So I think I think there's a there's a complexity and there's a there's a danger and there's a temptation and there's a drawback to those shared stories. Um, The uh, in terms of the social capital, I'm thinking, you know, there's all sorts of ways in which social media also enhance that. This winter, I get a text from a friend about, oh, I hear there's a snowmobile on your lake because I live next to a lake and I'm like I have I have no idea what they're talking about and they're part of a neighborhood Facebook group and she had seen that you know near my home there was an abandoned snowmobile and sure enough I go out there I find it this gets reported by the D- to the to the Department of Natural Resources they get the snowmobile off the lake before it crashes in so there's there's all sorts of ways in which those tight networks think of all of the homeschooling community organization that has happened, particularly during COVID when a lot of families were reaching out to other families, trying to figure out, Hey, can we make something work? So there's a lot of that social capital that gets facilitated. Um, You saw one of the, when Australia had a, the Australian government had a dispute with Facebook. Um, uh, I think this was maybe a year, year and a half ago in which, Facebook temporarily pulled the plug on everything in Australia before they could negotiate sort of how they were going to get past this impasse. And there were government agencies in Australia that did not have web pages. They only had Facebook pages. So they were literally like fire departments that their online public presence – I mean sort of like bread and butter government services – organizations like that, that's happening online now. And that should be acknowledged. Um, And in terms of the institutions, Haidt mentions Martin Gurry's Revolt to the Public, which is a wonderful book that gets into a lot of these dynamics. And Haidt, um, you know, know, praises the book and the piece, relies on some of its insights. But one of the insights of Revolt to the Public is that some of these institutions – This is the product of their own negligence and that what this environment has provided in addition to the sort of, you know, exploitation of institutions for personal aggrandizement that we've talked about and that Yuval Levin has talked about. But it has also led to more transparent and more accountable institutions and has shined a light on some things that institutions, be they government, be the church, be they the press. We've talked about how this has revealed the bias of reporters. Um, you know, there, there is a role for criticism of strong institutions. Um, and I think social media has provided a valuable outlet for some much needed criticism as well. So... That's where I would depart. I think there's I think there's a flip side to every one of these.
0: I agree with a lot of what Dan just said there. Um, the providing of transparency and sunlight as a disinfectant. Um, it, this just drives home to me that there are no unalloyed goods in this world. Every good thing has a downside and every bad thing has an upside. And to me... It, Shining a light in on some of these opaque institutions, um, an element of that, there's clearly some good that has come from it, but it has also created a lot of problems. And I remember we had uh, the congressman that represents this district, uh, Peter Meyer, in um, he echoed what uh, I have heard. Via several other friends who are out in Washington DC that amongst members of Congress the people who serve on you know the house select intelligence committee are the ones who like their committee life the best now why is that that's because they meet in a room underneath the Capitol that is hermetically sealed that no, no sound can get in or out of there's no recording equipment and as a result they can have a conversation. Compare that to near the end of the Trump administration where uh, Attorney General Bill Barr was summoned before I think it was the Senate Judiciary Committee and they all every down the line every Democrat asked the exact same question and didn't allow him to respond and every Republican made the exact same speech and didn't allow him to respond. And I think this by and large is representative of the problem of transparency that uh, take it out of just that interview context, that if there's actual negotiation to go on, you can't negotiate in public. When you're negotiating in public, you are just striking poses. You need to be able to... Anybody who's made decisions, right, knows that at some point, you just need to sit down with the other person or the other people intimately involved and impacted by the decision and just make have a private conversation to make the decision. Uh, you can't do that right now in Congress. So there's this. there's this, I think totalization in the way we talk about a lot of these things to say, you know, additional transparency is always going to be good. So we should put cameras in courtrooms and we should put, uh, you know, we should make things transparent everywhere without a realization that we need to balance these things and that it's a tough job to balance these things. And it has been made more complicated by technology, but that doesn't change the reality that it's Always been true that you need to balance transparency with privacy. And it's just a it's different now trying to figure out how we accomplish that.
2: Yeah, so something that further complicates all of this to, to Height's point uh, is the possibility of anonymity. So it's this weird combination, especially on Twitter. I think it's harder to do on Facebook. It's very easy to tell if there's a fake account on Facebook. They don't have any pictures of their family or that, you know, whatever. Like there's something that Twitter, just the way it, the nature of it is such that it is not so easy to figure out unless somebody has that little blue check mark, in which case it tells you something else about them. Um, it's not so much, not so easy to tell about whether, you know, like people use fake names. They use like a cartoon avatar or whatever, or they might even use a real photo, um, but you don't even know, does this person look like this? Who is this person? Right? Right. Is this person even a person? Maybe they're a bot. Um, There's plenty of those on Twitter. This even Um, comes
0: through more in in online dating, right? Whereas I had just uh, listened to a very interesting podcast uh, about a new book that's out where, you know, one of – Dating culture now, especially if you are doing it as facilitated by dating websites or dating apps, um, the first date now is meeting at a, you know, a casual restaurant or a bar. And the first thing you're wondering is when the person gets there, are they going to look like they did in their profile?
2: Yeah. So we have we have in Congress the problem of you put cameras in and suddenly all of our Congress people become performers. Right. Well, now ratchet that up a level where you get to choose your own face and your own name, and you literally, the whole thing can be a performance. I mean, it's for some people, maybe it's performance art. I don't want to knock on that necessarily. Um, But you have this problem where if you meet someone at a party that you didn't know before, and you start talking, and the conversation starts going in a weird direction, you start to get this sense, not just from what they're saying, but how they're saying it, and the look in their eyes. Oh, wait a minute. I need to kind of – I need to maybe shape my responses and the things I – like we've all had awkward conversations and we know how to get out of it. Um, But on Twitter, on the internet, people can just type, 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 tweet, tweet, tweet um, before you really have any idea what's going on. So I looked up some statistics uh, because I think this is relevant and something that people don't keep in mind. I don't – I want to say before I cite this, I don't want to stigmatize. I'm not trying to say this is all universally negative – I just want to point out the percentage of people in the country who simply don't um, operate under the same social expectations and rules. Um, so these estimates, these are higher number estimates, but based on a very high-powered study from what I can understand, 35,000 people from 20, 2001, 2005 reported by Psychology Today, um, roughly uh, 6% of the general population meets the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder, Uh Three to four percent meet the criteria for antisocial personality disorders. So that's like sociopathology. Um, and then uh, from National Institutes of Health, uh, roughly eight—no, uh, sorry—roughly uh, three percent, three to four percent of people are on the autism spectrum. Um, again, this does not make them bad people. I don't want it to be negative, and I don't think that all bad tweets come from them. I think normal people can be corrupted by their own passions and vices and say terrible things and believe terrible things, but. People are just logging on to Twitter and tweeting and interacting with people, uh, I think sometimes naively under the understanding that they're all playing the same game according to the same rules, and that is just not the case. Um, That can't be the case. We're talking 10 to 12% of the population literally has a psychological disorder that is preventing them from being able to do that in the same way as anybody else. Um, So you get the nastiness, you get the weirdness, you get... Uh, You know, all sorts of things. And then you get the cover of anonymity. Um, So there's no even tracing, well, who is this person? And how, you know, on on the other side, to be sympathetic, um, you don't even know how to be sensitive to these people because you don't even realize who they are beforehand.
0: I had mentioned, I would express what my skepticism of this this piece is, but uh, you raised in my mind how I think it's possible that this technology and uh, social media could be driving a lot of trends. Um, And one of them that I I was reading about over the weekend is uh, tracking over time, the number of people uh, in kind of uh, preteen teenagers who said that they believed that they were uh, trans, or if you go back through time, there's different terminology associated with that, uh, gender dysphoria, Um, around one to 2% of population. And now in some surveys, you're getting it upwards of 20 percent of that population, which, you know, on on one hand, it's, it's tough to separate out things that are just revealing what was actually there and things that are perhaps driving it as a uh, as a social trend. And I, I have a little bit of a difficult time. And there's a big delta. Right. Between one to two percent of the population and 20 percent of the population. Um, So it is entirely plausible to me that the transparency, that the immediacy of communication, of having all kinds of information and knowledge at your fingertips could be revealing that that one to one to two percent was perhaps low. But it also, I think, could be in a social fad or social phenomena driving it as high as 20 percent. And it's difficult to separate out where the line is, where it breaks between it's revealed the actual reality was larger than we thought it was. But it has also propelled it um, beyond uh, where it actually is, where it is just a social trend to say these kinds of things and. Um, Perhaps without really meaning it, my, my skepticism of Heights' argument in this, beyond his put you know kind of quasi solutions that he proposes at the end, which I am um, as a, again I, I like Jonathan Heights' work a lot, I am utterly unpersuaded by the solutions that he offers at the end of this piece. I don't know that we need to get into it. We're going long anyway. Um, I'll let listeners uh, go and read those proposed solutions and and draw your own conclusions from them. My skepticism is. We hear some form of this with the advent of almost every form of technology. We have heard these things before about how cable television was going to create all of these terrible social problems. The printing press was going to create all of these terrible social problems. Um, The telephone, the telegram, uh, every big advancement in technology is greeted with some of the same kind of fear and skepticism. And going back to my point about what is revelatory and what is trend driving, there's always some truth to it. Things do change. The change in technology does produce changes. It's a question of us trying to figure out how much and how much better or worse is it making things on balance. And I'm open to the argument that Height is making in this piece, that it is actually true this time, that this is really that much worse than all of those previous other iterations and that our reaction to it – Shouldn't just be some kind of skepticism and hesitation and consideration about the way that we engage with these forms of technology and these platforms. That it veers a little bit more into, and I'm not suggesting Heitis is on this train, but more into Ludditism to say that we should smash it and we should get rid of it because it is just bad for us altogether. But there is an element of that here, and there is an element of the argument that says, but really, no, this is so much worse than anything has ever been. And because I've heard it all before, I just think the the barrier you have to clear to get me on board with that reality is higher than it seems to be for a lot of other people. I We think we have to remember, as we talked about earlier in this program, we're of a generation that remembers growing up without the internet, without the true prominence and prevalence of computers but we have adopted that culture as our own as we have aged that's how young all of this is and to me I just return to the idea that I think we will adjust to all of this over time And it's going to be tough and it's going to be painful. And a lot of the things that Jonathan Haidt raises in that piece, concern over um, the impact of Instagram on teenage girls, there are correlated phenomenons having to do with suicide rates and self-harm that are very, very concerning. I don't mean to suggest that I am in any way cold or callous to that. I have an 11-year-old daughter. I am absolutely thinking about these things. But as a true phenomenon of our culture and of our world, it is very young and I tend to think that we will do a fairly decent job of adjusting to these things given time. But that's the problem. It takes time and we're analyzing it on a very shortened timeline right now.
1: Before any of us were born in 1978, Philip K. Dick, the science fiction novelist, wrote an essay, How to Build a Universe That Doesn't Fall Apart Two Days Later. And in it, he talks about a lot of the sort of pernicious media influence, particularly television and all of the destructive parts of human nature that that unlocks. A lot of the same themes we were talking about today. But he ends with this, in this note of optimism about human nature. A child has the clearest eye, the steadiest hand. The hucksters, the promoters are appealing for the allegiance of these small people in vain. True, the cereal companies may be able to market huge quantities of junk breakfast. The hamburger and hot dog chains may sell endless numbers of unreal fast food items to the children. But the deep heart beats firmly, unreached and unreasoned with. A child of today can detect a lie quicker than the wisest adult two decades ago. When I want to know what is true, I ask my children. They do not ask me. I turn to them.
2: So I love that quote from Philip K. Dick, and and I I once again you know agree for the most part. But I think to get back to um, you know height's picture of the the ruined tower of Babel, um, height has all these kind of oh maybe we could add this restriction to retweeting, and we could do all these kind of twiddling and fiddling and that sort of thing. I think there's hope in the future in our children, uh, as Dan pointed out. Um, I also think uh, from a biblical point of view, as the Tower of Babel, in fact, is from the Bible, uh, the answer to that, at least in the Christian Bible, is Pentecost. It's uh, Easter week this week for Western Christians. Uh, 50 days from now, it'll be Pentecost. And Pentecost is about the Spirit of God coming down um, for the sake of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations in all tongues for all people. It is about a greater story. It is about something that can unite people, that is genuinely true, and that transcends all of the nastiness and violence and just messiness of our over-politicized culture. And that's something that I still hold out hope for today. And I hope certainly any clergy and others listening will keep that in mind and remember that their vocation has something very
0: powerful and important to say to all of this. I think it's a good place to call it a wrap for today. I want to thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, again, please look in the show notes where you're going to find a link to where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Again, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, because that'll help more people find this program. Thanks to Dylan. Thanks to Dan. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.